uh, just uh, affirm, uh, demonstrate the truth that we were uh, preaching about last night. So thank you. Also, uh, I forgot to mention this, but I was texting with uh, our friend Brian Arner yesterday. He, uh, he asked to just uh, give greetings to you all here at the camp and uh, uh, just expressed his warm uh, thoughts towards you all. I invite you back to uh, 1 Corinthians 13. We're still in verse 4. Uh, we'll be in verse 4 for one more night after this is uh, on Thursday night when we come back after mission night uh, tomorrow night. And uh, we're still looking at after these first two expressions of what love is, of who Jesus is, he goes into this list of what it's not. And so last night we looked at love does not envy. Tonight we've come to that second item of what it is not where Paul says, after he says, love suffers long and is kind, love does not envy, love does not parade itself. That's the translation in the New King James translation. Love does not parade itself. For me, it raises the issue again that, that words matter. Uh, I think you know that in our lives, our words matter. Um, how many of us have been impacted by words in our lives? So words, our words matter positively or negatively, words matter. And I find that especially true as we come to, uh, I'm, I'm a strong believer in the inspiration of Scripture. Really strong believer in the inspired Word of God. And so, as the Holy Spirit inspired this, uh, writing through Paul, the words matter. And so the choice of words is important. And so for me, going back to what did this mean in its original context? It would be relatively simple for us to just kind of sit around and say, uh, read a passage and say, what does that mean to me? The real question is, what did that mean to them back then? I, there's, no really, there's no way for me, me to understand the message of Scripture without understanding what was God trying to communicate through that author to those people in that context. It's only then when I understand that that I can understand the message. It's not what it means to me. It's what it, God meant it to say through that author to that specific audience in that specific context. So in this case, God's, God's moving, Holy Spirit inspiring, writing through Paul to the Corinthians in the first century, somewhere around 52 AD. And so this, this is another example of wording that had meaning to them, I want to understand what did that mean to them as Paul writes in verse 4, love does not parade itself. I'm finding that the Greek, uh, these English translations fairly accurately seem to convey what the idea was. Um, some of the other translations you may have in your Bible, NIV says does not boast. That's a pretty good one. Love does not boast. Um, the Amplified Bible, by the way, if you ever do Bible study, I find the Amplified Bible to be a, a great help in Bible study. It just kind of really gives some uh, expression out of the original language. The Amplified Bible translated does not brag. That's a good translation. Um, the Phillips translation, not to be confused with the Phillips family. The Phillips translation says anxious to impress. Anxious to impress, which is another good translation. They seem to accurately convey what Paul is saying Love is not. Love does not parade itself. It's not trying to impress anybody. It's not about bragging. It's not about boasting. That's not the way Jesus is. Remember, this is a description of who Jesus is and who he wants to be in us. 
So the Greek word, I want to just kind of talk to you a few moments about the Greek word tonight because it's so interesting, it's so unique. It's only used one time in the New Testament, right here. The Greek word is perperomai, perperomai. In the Greek, uh, in the original language back in their day, it literally meant to boast or to lift up oneself, to vaunt oneself. Perperomai, to vaunt or lift up oneself. It was derived from a noun, perperas, which literally it describes a vainglorious braggart. A vainglorious braggart. So perperomai comes from perperomai comes from the uh, noun perperas. And as I dug into that word a little more, um, what I began to uh, suspect is that if we just, if you don't mind just kind of picking this apart for a minute, perperomai comes from the noun perperas. My theory began to be that that was derived from an adverb para. Para, perperas, perperomai. If you'll bear with me for just a moment. I know you're really excited about this. But anyway, this is what, this is what my geeky, uh, nerdy self gets into. So uh, the word para literally means, and I checked this, I, I, I had this theory about this, and so I emailed my, uh, my Greek professor, Dr. Troy Martin in Chicago, one of the foremost experts on Greek, I believe, in the United States, and he kind of confirmed this theory that all of this comes from that. Remember, we've seen so many times already that these words in Greek come from a, a root idea. They're, they're evolved, they are derived from a root word. And so I think this is kind of the bottom, this is the root of what this word is, is all about. And this, this root idea, para, means excessive or beyond measure. Excessive or beyond measure. Para means excessive or beyond measure. So this word is per pair. It's like double that. So if you get the idea of what this word seems to communicate, it's like double excessive, double beyond measure, excessive excessive, especially when it comes to your speaking about yourself. So you can kind of see where the translations about um, boasting and parading yourself and anxious to impress come from, because it seems to be the picture, this word seems to be the picture of what love is not, seems to be the picture of somebody that's really into almost going overboard in talking about themselves. Almost overboard in this excessive, way above, way beyond, like more than needed, just kind of trying to talk about themselves and looking or sounding impressive. The, uh, the Roman, you may have heard of him before, the Roman philosopher and historian Cicero used this word in some of his writings for showing off. That's, that's how he translated this word. Being a show-off. So again, I, I remind you that this is important as we look at these words because, as I shared yesterday and maybe the day before, Paul didn't just kind of pick these words randomly in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is this and love's not this. He didn't just kind of like, he wasn't sitting around one day sipping lemonade and sitting around and saying, and just, you know, random words coming to his mind or, you know, picked them out of a hat or something like that. What Paul's doing with these specific words is he is addressing, remember, particular things that they were acting like in their church and in their culture, the Corinthians. And so this word very specifically, this whole idea of talking excessively, of really trying to be and sound impressive, this was something that was really a part of their culture in ancient Greece. 
Very, very specific. See, in their culture, if you, if you know anything about the ancient Greeks, um, one of the things about them was they were into this thing called rhetoric. Everybody, anybody ever heard of rhetoric? They, uh, nowadays, they, there's like, um, what do they call that? There is a classical education kind of coming back um, in some circles. And one of the things of classical education is the practice or the study of rhetoric, which is the whole idea of being able to speak and write well. Rhetoric. And oh boy, the, the Greeks were really into that. They were into this idea of, we want to think and sound very flowery and be very impressive. Aren't you impressed? We want you to, we want you to be very impressed with our ability to speak. And this was going on a lot in ancient Greece. For example, you may remember in Acts 17. Do you remember in Acts 17 and Paul goes to Athens? He goes to Athens and he's out there and he gets into the marketplace and some of the philosophers in the marketplace hear Paul talking and they say, well, this is kind of interesting. Let's hear what this babbler has to say. That was the, that was the original trash talk of the first century. What does this babbler have to say? Because they were all into this kind of being competitive and trying to, who can outdo who and who can sound good and who can sound the best of those kind of a things. And so that's what was going on in their culture. It was, a, it was a really important thing in the Greek culture, how you sound and how impressive you are in, in what you can articulate. And so you know what's interesting is one of the, the problems of the church in Corinth was that instead of them influencing the culture, they were being influenced by the culture. And many of the problems that were going on in this church, you can name any of the problems going on in this church, division and sexual immorality and lawsuits against each other. I mean, just down the line, it's like they were letting the culture come into the church instead of the church shaping the culture. And so in the church, what Paul's addressing here, why he uses this word is because in the church, they were really into this idea of sounding impressive in their speech to each other. They were all about who could sound the best, who could be the most flowery, who could be the most persuasive, who could be the most impressive. That's why he says some of the things he says in the first verses of this chapter. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, that was their aspiration, to be able to talk so beautifully and to talk so impressively so that everybody says, ooh and ah. They were really enamored with themselves. They were, they were into, in the church at Corinth, they weren't, into mer they weren't into very much listening. They were into a lot of talking. You ever been around a group like that? It was the kind of thing where the conversations were in the church where you can imagine the, the first century board meetings in the, in the church in Corinth. And the board meetings where nobody wanted to listen because everybody wanted to talk and you can't hear anything because you're always thinking of what you're going to say next instead of listening to what the other person is saying. That's the kind of thing that was going on in the church. It's kind of the opposite of James 1.19. You know the James 1.19 thing? Be slow to speak and quick to listen. This was the opposite. Be quick to speak before anybody else does. Make sure to get your word in. Make sure to get your point in before anybody else does. Be quick to speak, be slow to listen. That was kind of their motto in the church here in Corinth. And so they were really enamored with themselves. They really loved the sound of their own voices here in the church at Corinth. And if anybody, in, in all of these translations, they were vainglorious. All these translations you're seeing of this word. They were braggarts. They were parading themselves. They were anxious to impress. They were actually a bunch of show-offs, really. 
I have to keep asking myself when I read these things, is that me in any regard at all? Do you ever find yourself, instead of being slow to speak and quick to listen, do you, do you ever find yourself being quick to speak and slow to listen? Do you ever find yourself wanting to get your point in before anybody else? I don't know about you, as I observe culture in these days, and our culture, especially our culture here in the United States in these days, I, I believe today there's a lot of speaking without a lot of listening, don't you think? And everybody's pretty quick to speak, and, and it seems to be a competition of who can be the most uh, persuasive, <laughs> or who can be the loudest. I have to ask myself if that's me sometimes. Um, for, I was preparing for a class for the Salvation Army, and I read this quote by um, a Salvation Army evangelist named Samuel Logan Brengel. Samuel Logan Brengel. Say that ten times fast. Samuel Logan Brengel, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he was talking about speaking, and he said this. I was interested. He said, many make the mistake of giving more time to the preparation of their address to what they say than to the preparation of their hearts. Many give more attention to the preparation of their speaking than to the preparation of their hearts, their affections, their emotions, and their faith. The result, Brengel said, is that often is often beautiful, brilliant words that have the same effect as holding up glittering icicles before a freezing man. I wonder sometimes if my words are like glittering icicles before a freezing man. But there's something even more about this word, if you're okay with this tonight, if you're okay with digging in a little deeper. Are you okay with that? Everybody all right? Not like you can go anywhere, but so. <laughs> there's something even further, because I kept wondering, I kept asking the question in my study, th does this word, this per-peromai, you know, per-per, excessive-excessive, does this have some special meaning in their culture? Would this have been like if you were, if you were a Greek or you were in Corinth and you heard that word, per-per, per-peromai, is that something that like would have been struck a chord? Is that something that would have been very cultural to them? And what I began to look at is the idea of the repetition of the word per-per at, at the heart of this, per-peromai, the, the repetition. And and, and, and you, you may or may not know this. I didn't really know this until I began studying it. When we have words in our language that are rep like they're based on the repetition of a sound, we call that kind of word an iterative. We use iteratives all the time in our culture without knowing it. An, itera an iterative is a word that's a repetition of a sound. For example, you know some of them well. For example, um, cuckoo. That's an iterative. Or... The word tut-tut, or how's, how's the day been? Ah, so-so. It's an iterative. Or my mom, my mom always, when I was growing up, my mom used to call sometimes a person a muckety-muck. Remember that. But I, I began to realize that perhaps the most common use of iteratives, the most common place in, in, in our lives where iteratives are used, like pear-pear, the most, the most common place it's used is Anybody know? Baby talk. Think about it. I, I made a list 
This is by, by not, by far, far from an exhaustive list, but I just jotted down a few of our baby talk words that are iteratives, the repetition of a, word, the repetition of a sound. For instance, um, you may say to a little baby, you know, everybody goes up to a baby and says, goo goo, or the baby says goo goo, or gaga, goo goo gaga, mama, dada, oh, did you get a boo boo? Would you like some din-din? How about some wawa? <laughs> Would you like some yum-yums? How about some num-nums? Bye-bye, night-night. There goes a choo-choo just yesterday down the tracks. Isn't that interesting? Those are iteratives. So I began to wonder that in the use of this pair-pair word, when Paul's addressing them and he's describing their, their way of speaking, their desire to impress people, they're being kind of all about listening, you know, hearing the sound of my own voice, and uses this word, per-per, I began to wonder if what he's doing is he is using that word to suggest almost like a, a loving poke at them, which he does all the time in this letter. He gives them these loving pokes, just almost like a tweak, kind of a tweak on the nose almost. And maybe begin to wonder if he's almost, what he's saying is, you know, you know what you guys are like in your, you know, you're trying to impress each other and trying to talk over each other and you know how you don't listen to each other and you know how you're always trying to get the last word in and you know how it's always about your, you know, what you think instead of what anybody else thinks. He goes, you know what that's like? You're being immature and childish. You realize your childishness in that you're self-aggrandizing, you're you're all you talk big, but it's really like baby talk. Wow. You say, now John, I, I kind of think that's a reach. I don't know if Paul, by this word in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, when he says love does not parade itself, I'm not sure that you can really pull out of that the idea of that that's what Paul's getting at, is immaturity. However, may I point out to you that back in chapter 3, this is exactly what he was saying to them. May I point out to you that back in chapter 3, if you go back to chapter 3 with me, verses 1 through 4, Paul says to them, brethren, listen to what he calls them. Listen to what he calls them. Brethren, chapter 3, verse 1, I could not speak to you as the spiritual people, but, but as to carnal, as to... Babes in Christ. He's calling them babies back in chapter 3. That word back in chapter 3 that's translated, at least in King James, is translated babes. That word is a word that refers to somebody that is so young they can't yet speak. Babies. From it we get the Latin word infants, from which we get the English word infant. He's literally in chapter 3 calling them infants. Immaturity. So the sense of what's happening here when we go back to chapter 13, verse 4, and he's talking about this, I believe, this parading itself, Paul seems to be highlighting their childishness, their immaturity, when they're trying to impress, when they're trying to talk all the time, when they're trying to sound impressive. He seems to be trying to, he seems to be pointing out their immaturity and their childishness. Can you imagine what a blow that would have been? Can you imagine somebody that, 
They really think they've got it together, and when somebody thinks they're impressive, and when somebody really thinks they've got it all together, or at least they're trying to, you know, they're giving all their effort to be impressive and sound impressive and, and, and make people ooh and ah and, and, and think everybody, everybody wants to think how great I am. And, and for somebody to hear, you're being childish. What a blow. Now, I hope you realize this by now in this chapter. The answer of this, the answer to this is to not try to change the way I talk. Okay, I get the point. I'll be quiet more. It's not really the point. Okay, I, I, I'll try my best from now on to do more listening. Okay, I'll try my best not to try to be so impressive and worry about how impressive I sound in my talking or in my Facebook post or whatever. All right, I'll, that's not the point. I believe the point of chapter 13 is that Paul is showing what their need is. Don't you all see that this is not who Jesus is? How you're acting and how you're behaving in this whole pursuit of yours of trying to be something and trying to be somebody, that's not Jesus. And so Jesus wants to be who he is in your life and he wants to work in your lives. And so he's... He's wanting to take care of what's inside you because you understand the speech and the way we talk is a result of what we are. That's what Jesus said. Remember Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I believe the call of this in, in chapter in 1 Corinthians, the call is that we need, Corinthians, you know what you need? As he's talking back in chapter 3, you know, if you go back to that chapter 3 again, he's talking to your babes and all, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it. For you are still carnal, he says, you're carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, in chapter 3, verse 3, are you not carnal? He's saying there's a there's a root of self-centeredness and carnality in your lives. That's why you're acting this way. So the answer is not try to fix the surface. The answer is you need to work inside. Right? That's why this banner is above me tonight. That's what we believe by the banner. This is not about just try to repair your behavior. This is not just about try a little harder. This is not just about, yeah, shape up, reform your behavior a little bit, put a little band-aid on. No, the answer of Corinthians and the scripture and the New Testament message is we need to work in our hearts. We need tonight his sanctifying work in our lives. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm convicted to the core that if we ever needed the sanctifying power of Jesus Christ in the lives of Christians and in the church, it's now. If there was ever a time for the message of holiness, not to be put on the back burner in favor of other things, but if there was ever a, if there was ever a time for a message of holiness to come to the forefront, it's now. That the answer is not this or that or this program or that program or this cause or that cause or this argument or that argument. That the answer is we've all got a need in the human heart. The human heart is the issue. And that's his point in this letter. We need, I need, I need, I need, I need. My, John Junman needs the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ to take who he is 
and produce who he is in my life. That the vine would produce his fruit through this branch. Now, you may know this tonight, but let me just say it briefly in case you didn't, and maybe it's good review. You understand that the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ is both a crisis and a process. It's both a crisis and a process because there's a lot of work to be done in us. Amen. <laughs> the crisis work is that Jesus is able to do a sanctifying work in our hearts in a moment. When I come to Jesus and surrender myself to him, you call it whatever language you want, dying to yourself, full surrender, uh, whatever you want to call it tonight, G we believe according to the New Testament in umpteen verses I could show you tonight, but we won't take time. We believe tonight that Jesus Christ can sanctify a person's heart in that moment. That's why John Wesley called it Christian perfection. We're not talking about perfect out here. I'm not perfect out here. You're not perfect out here. None of us is perfect out here until we get to heaven. Amen? But you can be perfect in your heart because Jesus can do a work in my heart, in my heart, that takes away self-centeredness, that crucifies self-centeredness, and can give me a heart that is surrendered to him. All I want to do is serve him, right? I want to serve him. I have no other desire. I don't have a desire to live for myself. I don't have my own agenda. His agenda is now my agenda, and all I want is him. That's what he can do in a crisis moment. But have you noticed that even when Jesus does that entire sanctification in a person's heart in a moment, you can stand up from that altar or wherever you just prayed, and you and I are not yet a perfect, shining example of, of humanity. That's why it's also a process. And so for the rest of our lives here on earth, get used to it, for the rest of our lives here on earth, what he did in my heart, he is now going to work out in the rest of me. Oswald Chambers said sanctification is he is working out what he's worked in. So in my attitudes, in my actions, in my words, in my thoughts, in my body, in my habits, the process that takes from here till heaven is that, again, the crisis can happen in a moment, a pure heart in a moment, but the purifying of my life, the sanctifying of everything about me is one by one thing after another. God is going to keep working on me and pointing out things to my life, and it is going to take a lifetime of that process. May I give you an example? For example, one of the things that God has had to do in my life is to, talk, is to work in my, how, how I speak. Just like Paul's talking about how I speak. And God really spoke to me about, as my children were growing up, how I, sp how I spoke to my children. And when I'm disciplining them, do it with love, even if you have to confront them. Even if it's difficult, do it in love. And so God really did a work in my heart. It was a wonderful thing how God taught me that. And he was so patient with me. And he began to, he began to remind me in those moments about his presence and his love and how he spoke to my children. And my, God just did such a work in me over those years. But you know how it is. You grow, and then he reveals something new. Isn't that great when God reveals something new? You don't sound excited. Isn't it great when God reveals something new to work on in your life? He's working out what he's worked in. 
So one day I was having a confrontation with my children over something, and they had that look on their faces like, like I'd done something wrong. And I said, what is it? It's, is it my words? I, did I say something? Did I say it? I've been prayerful. I know I said it in a loving way. And they said, Dad, it wasn't your words. It was your face. <laughs> and so I began to ask Jesus to sanctify my face. And he's been doing that. And when I have to speak about something to somebody. And just recently he began to add something else. It's not just what you say to them, it's what you say about them when they're not there. Isn't it great how God is so patient with us and he works on one thing at a time? I was emailing with a pastor friend of mine a few months ago. And he had shared a really heartbreaking situation in his church. And I was going through some very difficult times. So we were, we were praying and uh, talking about some things as friends, brothers in Christ. And he had e sent me this email, really described this heartbreaking situation. And I emailed him back about something. And, and I realized the Holy Spirit checked me right a little bit later. I was doing something. And what came to my mind, what the Holy Spirit brought to my mind is, you know what you did when you answered him? All you did was talk about yourself and your issues instead of what was going on with him. And I emailed him back immediately and apologized. Isn't it great that God keeps working on us and sanctifying us over a lifetime? Now let me tell you a few things about this process before we finish up in just a couple minutes. A couple things about this growth that we're to grow as Christians. We're to grow as believers. Two things I want you to remember tonight about this growth, because I think that's what Paul's inviting these Corinthians to. Paul's not just kind of berating them as a spiritual dad to his kids. You know, he's not just berating them. He's inviting them to grow. Right? He's inviting them to grow. So a couple things about growth, and then we'll finish. One thing is, you know, growth always involves something I didn't know about or wasn't aware of. Isn't it great that God doesn't reveal all the things in our life right now that we need to grow on? Last, I tell people all this all the time, but last time I counted, there was like 1,011 things in my life. I'm exaggerating. There was 1,000, probably not. There's 1,011 things in my life that Jesus is still going to work on. If God rolled out the list right now, I'd fall over dead. And so what he does is, he just shows me what I need to know right now to respond to, and it's always going to be something I didn't know about yet. Right? Oh, man, I didn't, even, I didn't know about the face. I didn't know about the face thing until God pointed it out through my kids. And then once I know about it, then I can respond to that and obey. Right? I'm not responsible for that until he reveals it. He reveals it, now I'm responsible. So it's always something that I didn't know about. And you understand tonight, it's possible to have a pure heart and still need to grow. I think we need to hear that as holiness Christians. Some people got the crazy idea somewhere a while back. Or I, I've heard people say, it's like if somebody had to respond and if they have to grow, oh, I never was sanctified. No, I think that's the evidence that you are sanctified if you're growing. So growing's not bad, growing's good. Yay for growing. <laughs> Yay for new light. Yay for Jesus showing me something new. It wasn't easy. Dad, it's your face. You think that was easy to hear? <laughs> it's not easy to hear. It's painful. 
So it's not bad. We all need growth. And can I tell you tonight that this long-suffering God, he's long-suffering with us tonight. He's showing us things in our life for our good. I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. He talks about our human fathers disciplined us, you know, as seen best of them. And then he says this, but God disciplines us for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. No chastening, no correction seems joyful for the present. Boy, is that true about the face thing? Whenever I get corrected on something, it hurts. Makes me sad. Oh, man. It's never joyful for the present, but afterward, it's painful, but afterward it yields the fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You want to have his fruit in your life? Be open to the, be open to the correction. So that's, that's number one. Growth is about something I didn't know about. Secondly, growth is hard. Growth is hard. You know what the title of this sermon is? The title of this sermon is, Growing Up is Hard to Do. Remember Neil Sadaka? Anybody remember Neil Sadaka? Breaking up is hard to do. This is growing up is hard to do. <laughs> Howard's going to sing it for us afterward. Never mind. Remember we talked a couple of nights ago about this tough love, about love is tough. Having Jesus work in your life, this is not for wimps. Loving with the love of Jesus, this is not for wimps. This is tough. This is take it on the chin, man. This is, this is going to require everything you've got. This is the hardworking farmer. This is, this is not going to be easy. Who said this was going to be easy? And remember we said that growth involves usually fruit requires trauma. Fruit trees, remember the baseball bat? It's trauma sometimes in my life. For, for me to grow, it's not easy, it's traumatic sometimes for me to grow. And growth always, always, always involves some kind of surrender or loss. You never grow without a surrender. I challenge you tonight to look back, I invite you tonight, look back on every single time in your life when you grew. Man, did I grow through that. Oh, I can't believe how I grew. I guarantee you tonight, if I look back on any period of growth in my life, there was pain and loss and surrender. I wonder if, I wonder if that's why, we're back in 1 Corinthians 13, I wonder if that's why, I think it's why in verse 11, I know, I know I'm going to get to that like months from now. But if you look down to 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says this. When I was a child, by the way, that word child there is the same word that he uses back in chapter 3. You know, babies. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away, put away Put away childish things. Put away. You know what the word put away there means? In Greek, the word put away means to leave it behind. Let it be. It's like when you're farming and you just got to let that field lay, lay fallow and you're going to go on to another field. You just got to let it be and go on. Leave it behind. I love casting crowns, you know, Mark Hall, those guys. I love... I love those guys. I, I love Mark Hall because of his testimony and because of, uh, because of the words that he focuses on Jesus. And one of my favorite songs that he sings is The Well. Leave it all behind and come to the well. 
That same word, when, when, when Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, put it away, help me understand it a little more, and we're almost done. In chapter 1, verse 28, he says, the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen, the things which, which are, are not, to bring to nothing, to bring to nothing, that they would become nothing. He says that same thing in chapter 2, verse 6. We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. The word put away literally has the idea of just, just let it be nothing. It may be there still, but just let it get smaller. Let it become smaller. I'm going to ask Tab to come and help me finish. Anybody like uh, Chronicles of Narnia? Chronicles of Narnia. I love Aslan. Um, at our house at home, um, just over the years, uh, for me and Pastor, you know, like Pastor Appreciation gifts and stuff, and I... There's this artist um, named William Hallmark, and he paints the Lion of Judah. I just love that we have those, Trina and I have those pictures in our bedroom, above the bed. So in the book Prince Caspian, you, you may know the saga, but in the book Prince Caspian, the kids come back to Narnia after they'd been there in the first, you know, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. And the very first time that Lucy sees Aslan, the very first time on this re return visit, she sees Aslan, she says, Aslan. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. You're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are bigger, Lucy said, I am not, said he. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Is that the key to spiritual growth? To let Jesus get bigger? Remember the old hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will strangely dim. They'll become smaller. That Jesus, you may become bigger and bigger to me and the things I'm trying to be or trying to impress or trying to say or all these things I'm fighting for in this world and this life would just get smaller and smaller. I don't know about you, I feel like we need a lot of that today. We need to let Jesus get bigger and everything else become strangely dim. Is there any place in my life tonight, is there any place in your life tonight to grow up? Well, I don't know, John, I'm pretty good how I am. <laughs> Anywhere to grow tonight? He'll show you. Probably something I never saw before. Maybe it's something I've been fighting. But an area to grow, grow up, more like him. 
for him to be bigger and something else to get smaller in my life, especially me? Are you willing for Jesus tonight to take you beyond where I've been? It's time to move on to the next field. I've been plowing that ground long enough <laughs> and trying to dig that thing up long enough. I've been trying to make something happen there long enough. Jesus, is there anywhere you want to take me beyond tonight where I need to leave, leave it all behind for you to become bigger? Want to let Jesus become bigger tonight? Get anything tonight? You'd like him to just overshadow and take you beyond. Can I remind you tonight, we've got a kind, engaged, long-suffering God who has something really good for us if we're willing to leave behind whatever he points out. Let him do his work in us. Would you prayerfully consider that and respond to him tonight in some way while Tab leads us even sing along if you'd like.